This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. It's challenging enough when a loved one needs to go into a long-term care home. But imagine being banned from a long-term care home after speaking out about poor living conditions where your loved one lives. Mary Sardellis was not allowed to visit her 97-year-old mother's Ottawa retirement home for almost a year. She was banned under Ontario's Trespass to Property Act, which allows private property owners to limit who can come onto the premises. Some experts say this act is being used to keep out family members who complain about conditions in retirement and long-term care homes. This was among the topics which got the attention of our Zoomer squad this past Monday. Libby Snymer was joined by Zoomer Media Vice President David Kravitz, Zoomer Magazine Senior Editor Peter Mugridge, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer for CARP, A New Vision of Aging. So as far as I understand, legally speaking, a home can't prevent someone from having a family member come and visit them because it's meant to be a place where, you know, it's their home, it's where they live. And so they're circumventing this through uh, using, you know, trespass orders. So as, I mean, assuming everything in this article is accurate, uh, how they're doing it is they're using these trespass orders to prevent people that may be raising concerns about the condition of the home. Um, And we have a couple of situations written within this article where family members have said we were banned or uh, had our time limited to visit our family member in long-term care because you know, management of the home deemed my behavior inappropriate or potentially aggressive and and harmful. So this is egregious. It truly is, right? Um, And, you know, while I've not personally experienced, had anyone share any one of these stories with me, uh, Jane Medes from Advocacy Center for the Elderly, who I respect Yes, Deeply we've had her on the show this, many times. Says she hears uh, from family members often. And if that's true, which I believe it is, that is absolutely heartbreaking and egregious. Well, when you drill down, I think in some of those cases, family members got upset and raised their voice. So the question is, if somebody raises their voice, is that enough of a reason to to ban them? Peter, what do you think? Well, you know, my, uh, I, I went through a long run of caring for people, um, my father and mother and my godmother in, in nursing homes. And, and there always is, there always are one or two, you know, I, I don't want to say aggressive people, but there, there's always visitors who feel they need to, you know, push back against uh, management. And they push back vigorously and they become pariahs in the home and, and the home sort of builds a wall again around them, you know. So they they can't sort of uh, keep pushing their agenda or keep complaining and 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 to the extreme, I guess this is what's happened here is they took out a trespass order on on this person. It does happen, and and you have to be they you know it's a fine line between standing up for your loved one and you know crossing the bounds of of 
decency. That's, you know? it's, no, it's I also, disagree. It's also yeah. what they didn't do. Uh, I read the articles that it's this long period of time where this trespass order is in effect. It's clearly an abuse of the trespass right. laws mm-hmm. because yeah. obviously if someone was violent, if someone was physically oh, assaulted, obviously. obviously you've got to keep them out. But what's happened here that struck me in this one case with the 97-year-old there weren't any meetings in between. There wasn't any attempt to find out what is the complaint, how can we satisfy it. Well, if the, if the management had done something to mitigate the situation, maybe you could say, "Look, they're trying their best. This woman's unreasonable." But this was just your band. See you later. And frankly, I've seen I've seen situations where actually raising your voice is the only way of course, to get anything absolutely. done. And so it. Yeah. And the thing is, is if. Long-term care homes in Ontario had a squeaky clean reputation that was pristine, you know, maybe. But we do know that there are a series of horrors and abuses that occur in long-term care every single day. Uh, The other thing that I'm concerned about is the fact that, you know, people will be afraid then to come forward. If they're having their privileges revoked, they'd be afraid to come forward and push even Mm -hmm. further at the risk of not being able to see their loved one in long-term care because management would keep them out. That they're using this and abusing it, as David said, is wrong. Yeah. Plus, there's a whole retaliatory thing that I'm afraid that after I leave, they're going to take it out on mom because I was complaining. Oh, that's right. And that's also a problem. We've had stories like that. Well, yeah, I think that that... There, all those things come into play, whether somebody is banned yes, or yeah. not. It's another case of, you know, we have to do something about these nursing homes. Like we, there's so many, um, you know, laws and, and things that are just done haphazardly. We need to get on top of it and, and figure it all out. And, it, and it's going to take a massive strategy, which I'm sure CARP will be pushing for. Zoomer Magazine Senior Editor Peter Mugrich, Zoomer Media Vice President David Kravitz, and Marissa Lennox of CARP, our Monday Zoomer Squad. Make sure to join Libby Snymer tomorrow at noon on the Zoomer Week in Review when she speaks with Jane Medus about family members being banned from nursing homes. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The Ontario Liberal leadership race is on. Six candidates registered to run by Monday's 5 p.m. deadline. Fight Back will have a chance to speak with each of them at least once during the race. Candidate Michael Coto, MPP for Don Valley East, joined Libby on Monday to talk about his proposal to make public transit free for riders. Well, what I've actually asked for is to take the next 10 years to look for ways to open up access to transit to fight climate change. As you may know, 40% of our CO2 emissions actually comes from uh, the way we, uh, we move uh, through transportation. And what I've asked for is for us to look for opportunities to really rethink our, our transit system and, uh, and look for ways, incentives to get people out of their cars. That could be uh, doing what the City of Toronto is doing today by offering free transit for people under 12. Uh, it could be by putting discounts at certain times of the day or, you know, an off-peak uh, hours uh, uh, making it free for seniors to use the transit uh, when it's at low capacity. So, you know, that's what I'm really asking for. And it's a great way to uh, to flip an issue like climate change upside down, find an opportunity uh, and uh, do that through uh, improving transit. Right now, transit fares uh, help support the system to the tune of over a billion dollars. Where would that money come from? So, again, you know, I'm looking at a 10-year incremental plan. Uh, We've seen in many cities around the world where uh, the types of investments have been made by governments to to fight climate change through transit. 
so what I'm asking us to do is to rethink uh, here in Ontario uh, our transit uh, our transit strategy. Uh, we could see opportunities uh, like like I said, um, figuring out which lines could actually be free, uh, how much that would actually impact use revenue like the gas tax and uh, climate change revenue that comes from Ottawa to Ontario uh, to uh, to fight that type of uh, the type of CO2 emissions. So. I think it's uh, it's taking a bold uh, new perspective and not to be afraid to ask the question. Uh, and that's why I've suggested a 10-year timeline to achieve that uh, with a, a very serious aspirational goal of making transit eventually free. Uh, but it would take many steps to get to that point. And uh, I'm asking Ontarians just to uh, to reimagine transit. That's all. One of the things people say when they critique your plan is that, first of all, our transit system isn't good enough, that it's it's crowded like sardine cans. So really, if we want more people on it, we have to expand it first. What do you say to that? Well, I say that we continue to make those investments into transit infrastructure. That's a, a separate line within the budget. But imagine if you offered a discounted rate before 7 a.m., so maybe from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., or from uh, from 10 to 12, uh, a discounted rate, would that change the pattern in which people use and access transit? Uh, those are the questions that we need to explore. So right now on line one, on the young line, uh, sometimes I hear it at 130% capacity. Uh, and that's because everyone's trying to get to work at the exact same time. All I'm asking us for us to do is to look at data, um, look at opportunity, and to change the way people use transit. So uh, there may be some folks out there if uh, if they could take the uh, uh, the train in at six thirty versus seven thirty and save fifty percent throughout the month might take that up as an option. So that's what I'm asking us to do to actually uh, fight uh, overcapacity and put in new solutions and at the same time fight climate change by getting people out of their cars. The other thing that a lot of people are saying is that you're focusing on the wrong thing. That rather than making it free it would be more effective to make driving more uh, expensive, either with road tolls or other measures like that? Well, if you go around this province, uh, you will know that people are struggling with affordability. There are a lot of people out there who are struggling. Um, By putting in tolls, uh, what you're essentially doing is... uh, uh, is, is charging people more for the services they've already paid for, number one. And number two... Uh, there hasn't been enough research uh, in urban centres like the City of Toronto uh, that would uh, clearly uh, satisfy me when it comes to the impact in communities like mine, the Don Mills community. So the DVP toll, for example, you know, what would be the, the congestion that would apply to routes like Victoria Park and Lawrence and Don Mills as a result? Would people from the East End drive, you know, through those major roads uh, to access downtown versus paying the toll? I don't know what those impacts would look like. So just by... Uh, Deterring people from using their car uh, may uh, work in some cases, but at the same time, we have to understand what that impact is going to be locally on on those major roads. Uh, so that's uh, that's you know that's my take on it. Um, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't explore other uh, options to uh, uh, to 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 improve transit in in Toronto or anywhere in Ontario. Uh, but this is specifically aimed at public transit and looking for ways to fight climate change.
Ontario Liberal leadership candidate, MPP Michael Coto. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Ontario's Health Minister Christine Elliott announced on Monday that Mississauga Health is the first to establish an integrated health team as part of the province's broader plan to fix the health care system. There are to be 24 of these across the province, and they're described by the governing PCs at Queen's Park as the cornerstone of the government's revamp of our health care system. Libby Snymer welcomed Christine Elliott to get some of the details. These teams are comprised of health care providers that already exist in, uh, in their geographic area. So unlike the local health integration networks, which was another body that sort of imposed rules and regulations that were established in some part by them and some part by the Ministry of Health. The local teams now are going to be planning the care, how they will have the funds to implement the care, and they're going to be able to close in the gaps that we all know exist in care so that patients will receive quality, connected care from one part of their healthcare journey until they're well. Are they going to cover each of them a big geographic area and each of them having their own kind of administration? Yes. Each local Ontario health team will be responsible for um, all of the residents of their geographic area, and that has been determined based upon their application and all of their partners in care. And it's all of the the uh, healthcare partners that you would expect from hospitals to home care to long-term care, mental health and addictions, community services. Um, in the past, it almost used to be like a, a competition for every budget to see which sector would get the most funding, whether it would be for hospitals or whatever. This time, it's all based on the patient. What does the patient need? And all of the care providers are positioning their services around the patient and what does the patient need and filling in those gaps in services. What is the contact between the patient and this system? So I, as a patient, say I'm leaving hospital and I'm going home. How am I in touch? I mean, right now, there are LINs involved or community care involved, and, and supposedly there's somebody who sees me in the hospital who may or may not give me, uh, you know, continuing care. So how will it work? Well, the uh, patients will still access care in the same way they always have. They'll still go and see their family physician or nurse practitioner, whoever it is that they've been seeing. But what's going to be different is that the care is going to be more connected it's going to be integrated. It's going to look at all of their needs. One of the biggest issues in the past and, and a real gap in service has been the transition. So say, for example, a patient that's being discharged from hospital but still, still needs home care. In the past, the, under the old system, by the time they left hospital, they often didn't know who the home care provider would be, what services they would be providing, or even when they would show up at their door. Under the new system, they will have all of that information before they even leave the hospital. So it's going to be better quality connected care that's easier to access for the patients, families, and caregivers. What is the timeline for getting your other Ontario health teams in place? Right now, there is kind of a hybrid system, and I keep hearing things, you know, there are obviously problems in the transition. There are going to be um, uh, other 
applications that we will be receiving. The deadline is in early December for them to submit. Some groups were waiting to see how things would go for the for the first group. And so this is an ongoing process that we hope to be completed uh, certainly within three years. But the most important factor here is making sure that patient care is not um, negatively affected. So we, uh, we have to, in some areas, just take, take our time to make sure that we do it properly because we don't want, um, patients to have any problems in finding the care that they need. I would say, like, for now, um, people should certainly access care in the same way that they always have. In many respects, they won't notice anything in terms of the, the faces that they'll see and that the people that they will see, but what they will notice is that they will be able to get access to care sooner. It'll be more uh, coordinated and more integrated. We are also going to bring a visit virtual first for health technology forward so that very soon people will be able to make online appointments and to even have online appointments with their doctors. So we are bringing that forward and we are also going to create an easier to um, navigate service for people. Right now we have a, a whole hodgepodge of numbers that people can call for various health problems. We are streamlining that and we're going to make it one number that people can call wherever they live in Ontario and they will be able to get their questions answered and to, uh, to get the services that they need. Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. It was the first gathering of Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel since Prime Minister Justin Trudeau named his new cabinet. One of the portfolios is new and has prompted some skepticism. The Minister of Middle Class Prosperity. Joining Libby to comment, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group's Toronto office, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner of Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Kim Wright, Principal of Wright Strategies. So what does your ministry mean? What does it do? What is the middle class? What there, is the middle class? There is no answer from uh, from the government, which, you know, that, you know, when you're supposed to be comms people or at least thoughtful uh, comms people and you've created this whole post, maybe talking point number one, what does your ministry do? Uh, but, you know, we'll we'll see. Uh, you know, it could be anything and everything. And frankly, it's no different than, you know, we have Indigenous Affairs uh, ministers in the, in this country who are taking children to the Supreme Court as we speak uh, on Indigenous issues and not wanting to pay and compensate. So, you know, we'll we'll see. Maybe it's all a bit, a bit of doublespeak. I, I just say, I think it's a challenge. I, I get where the government is trying to go with naming these kinds of portfolios. But when you start naming portfolios out of the norm, you know, the, the normal ones like being finance and economic development and, and some of the other ones are small business and, 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 the, and the like, um, you start getting into, you know, people scratching their heads saying, okay, well, is it just another branding exercise? Is it just another fluff, you know, you know, trying to appease, uh, and or tick off one of the promises and saying, well, of course, 
course, we've, we've got a minister in charge of the middle class. Well, what does that mean? And, and how does that affect really the finance minister and the economic development minister? And they've also divided that portfolio into two or three. So I, I just don't know where they're going with this. And I think the challenge is, um, are you setting up that minister to fail, quite frankly? Like, so, you know, when the mandate letters come out, and those are the letters that the government will ultimately put out to say, here's what your responsibilities are to each of the ministers. Um, you know, I, I think people are going to sort of want to look to see what that minister's mandate letter is and how does it affect the finance minister and you know, some of the other economic ministries uh, in their uh, in their responsibilities. So it can cause some some challenges. Charles, I, I don't think I'm uh, the only person that's had a bit of fun with this. No, it's uh, there's a little there's always a risk of virtue signaling when you're when you're naming ministers after desired outcomes, such as middle class prosperity. I prefer her alternate title, which is associate minister of finance, which sounds a, a little more impressive and daunting. Um, I will say <laughs> that the minister is uh, a woman by the name of Mona Forche uh, from Ottawa Vanier, who was first elected in a by election in only 2017, following the untimely death of uh, Marel Belanger. And uh, she went on very quickly to become the co-chair of the Federal Liberal Platform Committee and is really, really an accomplished person um, and very, very smart. It was her and Ralph Goodale who were actually co-chairs of the Platform Committee. And um, I'm sure she will be of considerable assistance to the Minister of Finance going forward. Well, and I think a lot of you know cabinet ministers. Well, we we see this. So the three of us obviously have been in, being involved in politics the way that we are, the level that we have been in the past, and continue to be. We know, and we do give some deference to cabinet ministers. You know, once the government has been has been elected and there's a new swearing in, there is a bit of time where you know you. But yeah. but also the it's the it's the smart ones or the the really eager ones that will have lines or will have some level of response to be able to say, you know. Here's what I'm going to do. But the, the other ones won't take radio interviews if they don't know what they're going to do for the sake of not saying, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. So there is that kind of uh, issue that has to be <laughs> has to be considered. What should we look for in the coming week until we meet again? Well, I think uh, all eyes are federally. You know, we, we, you've been talking about it as far as the premiers all meeting with uh, with uh, Minister Freeland and the and the Prime Minister, obviously. But I think the House comes back uh, in the first order of business: the Speaker of the House, and then the Throne Speech, which will be interesting. Obviously, it'll get passed, and who will be voting for it, and who won't be voting for it, will be interesting to see. Uh, for me, I'm watching how the how the premiers and and municipal leaders. All we're in Ottawa right now for FCM's uh, lobby days, but also how do we make sure that those infrastructure dollars finally get spent, that communities are actually being enhanced? Because that's what it all boils down to. Charles? And I'm looking to the start of the Ontario Liberal Leadership Race, which oh, I think will yes. heat up in a major way. And uh, obviously we have uh, We didn't six talk candidates. about that. No, um, but... Uh, <laughs> and there's but lots to talk about, there's Charles. Lots to talk. I, have, I have a feeling that uh, we will have occasion to in uh, future sessions. There's some okay. great candidates. That was our Tuesday strategy panel, Kim Wright, Charles Bird, and John Capobianco. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Charlene in St. Thomas phoned about the idea of reflective armbands for pedestrians and cyclists. I think the armbands are a very good idea. My husband and I had a motorcycle at one time. And I managed to get my hands on a jacket made by Honda 
I was the passenger, of course, and it was completely reflective. So that when we were going down the highway, I was seen. And I think arm, any kind of reflection would be a very good idea. Martin in Brampton also likes the idea of reflective armbands, especially in the area where he lives. I live at Steeles and Bramalee in Brampton, and I had two friends hit by cars that, well, they were, you know, dark clothing and that. When you want to cross the street and jaywalk, and a lot of people have to do it, especially in Brampton, it's terrible. The streets are like six to like eight lanes wide. And yeah. everybody jaywalks. And a lot of people get hit. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ellen in Toronto, who phoned with her thoughts on penalties for drinking and driving in light of the new Quebec legislation, which forces two-time convicted offenders to blow into a breathalyzer to start their cars for a period of at least 10 years. No second chances. Um, let's utilize zero tolerance the way we do with under 21. You, you know, you make a mistake once, you know, that's fine. You make a mistake twice, license is taken away. I think it's absurd that we're spending all this time and money on trying to help and modify people that are offending. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.